a great hymn of the faith that speaks about abiding with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be sharing about that this morning as we look in God's word. Before we look in God's word, let's look to him in prayer one more time and ask that we might be attentive to what he has to say to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks into our lives. And we pray as we share this morning that you might cause us to focus on those things that will make a difference, not only in our lives, but for your kingdom's sake, that we might be useful vessels in your hand to show the love of Christ to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this past week, uh, my neighbor on my right-hand side, if you're looking out from our property, uh, put up a for sale sign uh, in, front of his, in front of his house. And as I was looking at that, it reminded me of a story I read a while back about this real estate agent and her associate that came uh, to a home in which there was a for sale sign on it. And they went in the door, knocked, and introduced themselves quickly. And, and then began running around the house, opening up cupboards and, and um, sliding glass doors and looking at each room. And, and then starting to make some comments about the home that was to be sold. And said, well, I think this room could take a little bit of change and light fixtures here. I think the rug in this room needs to be replaced. I think there needs to be some painting change of color scheme over here. And this went around. Here's a leaky faucet. You better get that fixed before you present the home to others. And after going through this, the real estate agent felt pretty good about herself and, and thought because of her expertise, the owner would say, you know, I probably ought to just list with you and you can sell my home for you. However, after she was saying her goodbyes, the owner of the home said, I think there's some confusion here. That sign in front of my property does not say house for sale. It says horse for sale. <laughs> Sometimes that's how we look at God's word. We're, we're thinking it's saying one thing. It's really saying something else. We didn't quite get it. We got more confused than um, enlightened by what it had to say. And as we go through the series in the New Testament, and we've phrased that questions asked and answered, two-way communication, if you've got concerns about some things you've read, we've had an opportunity throughout this series to deal and try to respond to specific questions. And actually, this morning, Lord willing, we'll be able to deal with one of Merle Shoemaker's questions uh, that he asked me a couple weeks ago, uh, found in the book of Romans. But as we do that, the other goal in going through the New Testament was to give you a bird's-eye view or a handle on all these books that are combined in what we call one book, the New Testament, in which is in connection with another larger book, the Old Testament, which has 39 books. And so what I hope to do is, as we go through book by book, you have something to take home with you and say, well, this is what this part of God's revelation was all about. So if you have your, your, your Bibles, or if there's one close to you underneath one of the chairs you're sitting next to, uh, turn your, in your Bibles the book of Romans, and you can actually turn to the 11th chapter and just camp there for a moment. As we've been going through the book of Romans, and we've, some of the books we've looked at, we've spent one Sunday on, and some we've put multiple Sundays with. In the book of Romans, we've chosen to spend at least five weeks in it. Lord willing, it'll be five weeks. And it's because you can summarize the book of Romans, which some consider the, the pinnacle of the revelation in the New Testament, the Magna Carta of the freedom message that we receive. You can summarize this book with Five words that begin with the letter S. And yes, this will be on the test, all right? So you need to remember this. It is that five words will give you a summary of the book. Uh, the first word, beginning with the letter S, is the word sin. And really what this book begins with is, is our problem. What's the problem that we have and actually our world has? And it's not global warming. It's not poverty. It's not 
crime. It's, it's a much more holistic perspective, and that's sin. We live in a fallen world, and that's why creation doesn't exactly operate exactly how we would like it to operate. And as we look at man's relationship to man, it's because of what the Bible calls sin. And sin is that which is, which is what we all fight with because we live self-centered lives that rebel against God's character and nature of what is right in this world. But it's one thing I have to point out the problem. Is there a solution? I can get all kinds of discussions, point out problems, but the challenge is, well, how, how we can f- we fix it? And, and there are many things in life that we have a, have a trouble fixing, whether it's something broken in our home or something broken on our car, and we have to go to someone else. Well, we have to go to someone else to fix our sin problem. And there's only one mechanic that's going to fix that, and that's Jesus. And, and so the next S word is salvation. That's the solution. And that's what you ought to expect from a place like this. It's all about Jesus. But Jesus is the one that deals with our sin problem. And so in chapters 1 through 3, we hear about sin. Chapters 4 and 5, we hear about salvation. And, and then last week, we talked about the life. For many people, they hear about, you know, you need, you need Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You need to believe in Him. Well, well, what comes next? You know, God doesn't beam us up immediately into heaven. and We live for whatever time period here on earth. And... We wonder, well, now what? How are we supposed to live out this life that God has called us to? Well, that's the, the third S word. And to use a religious term, it's the, it's the word sanctification. But if you want a different S word, it's the word spirituality. And often in our news media and talk shows, they'll talk about, are you a spiritual person? Do you consider yourself a spiritual person? I'm always amazed by what they define as spirituality. But the Bible does not leave us in the dark about what spirituality is or sanctification. The word sanctification seems to be mean simply means to be set apart and set apart from this world to God. Well, how are we supposed to live that out? Well, Romans speaks about that. We touched on it last Lord's Day, but I want to do a little bit of review. In fact, what we're doing in this series is big ideas reviewed and then big idea presented. So this is all by way of looking back at some things that maybe I didn't think I preached well enough the first time, so I'm going to get a second shot at you, all right? So what does it mean to live the spiritual life? What does it mean to live the life after you become a child of God? Well, Romans 8 gives us some clues in there. I want to make a few simple comments, and then I want to leave you with a a practical handle on the Spirit-filled life. First of all, the Christian life is defined as a walk according to the Spirit. I'm going to make some very simple observations this morning. Romans 8, 1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, great truth that we don't have to be worried about God's future judgment if our sin has already been judged by Jesus on the cross and we've believed in him. But then he says this. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that describes the, the Christian life about as simple as you could. What is the Christian life? It's a walk. It's, just a, it's a stroll through life. It's a journey where we go through the, the, the challenges and the adventures of every day. But to break it down even further, it's simply an understanding that, that each part of your life is, a, is another step. When you think about the process of walking, it's one step and then another step. And then it's another step. And then it's another step. And the issue for us to realize in the Christian life, God wants us to understand that each step that we take I'll be a step we take by the power of the Spirit living in and through our life. So spirituality is taking every walking step with the Spirit of God leading and empowering you to be the kind of person God wants you to be. 
But then as I was thinking about that and rereading through the book of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 8, I was thinking, well, okay, that seems a little mysterious, okay? So he's walking with me, he's flowing through me. Well, how does that work? Well, Paul also puts in Romans 8 this principle, and then I'll read the verse. The Christian life is lived by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. It says in Romans 8, 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So if the Christian life is a walk, it's a step-by-step experience, then how does that happen? How do I know if I'm taking each step with Jesus and with the Spirit of God? Well, it's all about where your mind is. Your mind really controls really everything that you do. It controls your actions and also controls your attitudes. If, you, if I could somehow plant a thought in your mind and get you to really believe it, it would change your mood. It would change everything. You know, if, for instance, if I could, this is the first thing that just popped in my mind. If, if I could convince you that you are one of life's greatest fools, that you have the intelligence of, a, of a, an apple or whatever it might be, that, that really nothing going on in your mind, how would that make you feel about yourself? Pretty poor, right? I mean, if, if I could convince you that you are the most stupid person, everybody hates that word, you're the stupidest person in the entire world, all of a sudden your life would change. And what God wants you to do is that the, the world is giving us messages all the time and our minds are polluted by them. And what he wants us to do is set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And even there, if we were to trace that any length of time, you'd find the things of the Spirit are the things found in the Word of God. So if you want to walk a spiritual life, if you want to be sanctified in your experience, then your mind needs to be things set on the things of the Word of God and believing those truths and applying them in, their, in your life and believing them. You know, God calls you special. God delighted in you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. It ought to lift our spirit every time to think about the love of Christ cannot be taken from us. And so a spirit-filled life, a sanctified life, is a life set on the things of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. But then you might be saying, okay, I need to take a walk step-by-step step with the Spirit of God leading me and guiding me and empowering me. How I do that is by setting my mind on the things of the Spirit, which primarily is the Word of God. But what, what if I just don't feel like it? Do any of you ever not do certain things simply because you don't feel like it? Can, we, can I see a hand out there? I see a hand. I see a hand. Okay. We, we're all governed by what we're motivated by. If, if we don't want to do something, we usually don't, what? Do it. And sometimes we know the right thing, but at that moment, maybe we doubt, well, maybe it's all right this time not to do it or whatever it might be. Well, God's word gives us simple motivation. The Christian life that is spiritually minded experiences life and peace. Look at it. Romans 8, 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. When you're governing your life not on spiritual things, but the things of this world, eventually that's going to be destructive. And the only way you experience God, God's life in His fullness is to center your life on Him. And you do that primarily through your mind as you feast on the Word of God that then filters down into your heart and your emotions, your attitudes and your actions. And if you really want the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, it's only going to be when you walk according to the Spirit. 
when you walk step by step, when you set your mind on Him, and you, and you really believe that He is the author of life and peace. But I want to give you one other handle. One other handle in terms of spiritual life is to understand that it should be a moment-by-moment experience. Well, some people we know no longer have the ability to walk, so that analogy doesn't work. But anyone who's still alive today, one thing is common with anybody who's still alive today, they're still breathing. And so we can be reminded about the Spirit-filled life by recognizing every breath we take can be one that we take by the power of the Spirit. Now, breathing is a very simple exercise. We all do it naturally. Uh, When we inhale, what comes in? The good stuff or the bad stuff? Good stuff. And we exhale, what what goes out? The bad stuff. And and when you think of that analogy, this analogy was put together by Bill Bright a number of years ago in terms of just spiritual breathing. But spiritual breathing is simply remember that throughout your life, you need to be inhaling the power of the Spirit in your life, letting Him control you and fill your lungs and your life with that which is good, which is His Son, and with the Spirit of God who lives within you. And then you exhale the things in your life that are wrong in your life that you need to get rid rid of. And, And so everybody take a deep breath right now. And then let it out. One more time. Take a deep breath. It's interesting if you have been a student recently of, it's probably not just recently, but it's been, become much more popular, about exercise routines. One of the things they say to everyone who really is serious about exercise, you need to learn how to breathe. If you don't breathe well, you're not going to get all the benefits of all the exercise that you're taking. And that's true in the Christian life. If you don't learn to breathe, you're not going to learn to really walk in His presence on a daily basis. Uh, long story that I'll try to make short. Uh, I'm, I'm learning how to scuba dive in the present, going through the whole training process. And I found out in a humbling way that I'm not as good as I thought I would be in that. There's a number of things that aren't necessarily natural to me. And one of the things I've discovered, one of the things that's not natural to me is the whole breathing process when you get underneath the water with a tank on your back and something in your mouth. They have one, the, the major rule when you go through the, the, the training on on scuba diving, is that you need to learn how to breathe. And they say, one thing, don't ever forget, never stop breathing. Never hold your breath for any reason. Even if you don't have something in your mouth, you breathe out the bad stuff out of your lungs because you don't want your lungs to fill. Well, I won't go through the whole nine yards. But one of the things I've discovered as I'm underneath the water, I, I really bought into the principle of keep breathing and I would, I would take a huge breath. But what I would often be negligent on is, is breathing completely out, to exhaling out. And if you don't exhale the right way and deeply, you don't dive well. It just does not work. And, and that's true for the Christian as well. Is that it's one thing to say, okay, I want the Spirit of God to control me. But if I don't exhale, which means, God, I want to, you to purge me of all the things in my life that are wrong. Then your whole walk with God will be derailed. And, and some of us, we struggle on either end of this. Either we don't remember to uh, inhale, which allows the Spirit of God to control us, or we don't remember to exhale, which say, God, you do have open reign in my life. Is there anything in my life right now that dishonors you? Is there anything in my life I need to get rid of by the power of your spirit? Is there anything in my life that dishonors you? 
It's really easy to play games with God. We do enough things that we feel, well, I'm doing okay. But really what we're not, we're not doing is inhaling completely and exhaling completely. Here's my challenge for you for this week. You know, take some deep breaths. This physically, take some deep breaths in and out. Just, just sense how good that feels when you do that. And then make the connection with God. God, I want, I want to inhale completely. I want to surrender every part of my body to, the, to your spirit, every part of my life, every part of my calendar, every part of my agenda to you. And then, God, you have free reign to take everything out of my life you want out. And just make that a practice this week. Because sanctification or spirituality is as simple as this. It's allowing the Spirit of God to live in and through you, guiding you, taking those things in your life He wants to direct you toward, and then allowing Him to do surgery, taking those things out of your life that He doesn't want in there. Okay, that's big ideas review. Sin, salvation, sanctification, or spirituality. What's the big idea presented this morning? Well, that's the S word, sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. Now, that's kind of a religious word, though in some nations, in Europe and whatever, they think of people being sovereign. It's really a person in control, a person being in charge, a person who's who's handling the affairs of state. And as we think about God, we, we need to remember that God is sovereign, not only in terms of position, but also power. He not only has the right to do anything, he has the power to do anything and everything. And unless we really buy into that, we're going to go through the life with God struggling more than we should. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a struggle. But if we don't believe in the goodness of God and the power of God, when things go wrong, what we're going to want to do is bail. We're going to try to we're going to want to quit. We're going to want to go some other place, or we want to just play the blame game with God. And as you look through Romans, in in many ways, and I shared this in the beginning of the series, is that Romans is a book in which Paul, as he writes these major truths, often he will think of an antagonist or a person who might debate him after he says what he says or writes what he writes. And, And to be an effective communicator, even though it's in written form, so the debater won't say it to him verbally, he knows that's what they're thinking. And we've, we've all been that experience where we're talking to someone we know, hey, they're not buying this because they got, they got something that bothers them with what I just had to say. And this is what Paul was experiencing. Because if you remember how Romans 8 finishes, speaking about the spirit life, according, loving according to the spirit, it, it finishes with that great statement that, that God's love is so sufficient and nothing, no one, anything, anywhere ever, who's ever been can separate us from the love of Christ. God is faithful, will not allow us to be stranded on this island away from him. And then Paul began to think, I know what they're thinking. If God is that faithful, then to his people, to those he, he brings into his family by his grace. Well, what about Israel? Isn't Israel God's chosen what? People? Isn't Israel the apple of your eye? Isn't he the one you made all those promises to? I mean, you, you've even written about him already. And Abraham, he believed God and was accounted to him as righteousness. And where's Israel today? Well, you know, most of the people now who are of Jewish descent, they've rejected him. So how can you say God is faithful to his promises? Because he can't even keep his own people next to him. Are you really in charge? Are you really sovereign? 
Are you really that all-powerful and good? And so Paul deals with it in chapters 9, 10, and 11. We don't have time to dissect all of that because this is a survey. But in chapter 9, he speaks about the election of Israel, the, the choice of Israel to be his family. But then in chapter 10, he speaks about their rejection, that they did not respond to him in faith. But then in chapter 11, he speaks about their restoration. See, God will be faithful to his promises, but sometimes we don't know when those will come into effect in terms of when he will fulfill the promises in the past that will be fully completed in the future. And so what I want to do quickly this morning is to use Israel. This is a little bit deep this morning in terms of understanding his, his flow of thought. But I want you to get the main point. The main point is that God is good and God is all-powerful and that God has everything under His control because He truly is sovereign. He really is the one in charge. And when life goes wrong in your life, you don't have to wonder, is this some accident of nature? Is this some cosmic killjoy decided just to let things run its own course? Now, God never makes a mistake. God, even though we might not understand what he's doing or why he's doing, whether it be the story of Job or whatever it might be, that God is in control. God is good. He's powerful. He's got things in his hands. Well, how, how do we respond? Well, how can you explain Israel then? Why have they rejected him? And he gives us five reasons in Romans chapter 11. We're going to share a few of them this morning. First of all, we can know that God has everything under control and will keep his promises because, first of all, the example of Paul. He simply says this in Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? See what he's saying? This is what you're thinking. You don't believe all these things are true. God's promises in the future won't be fulfilled because God's promises in the past have not been fulfilled. And isn't that how we evaluate people, whether we can trust them? If they've broken promises to us in the past, man, I... I'm not buying into this. Don't tell me what you're going to do in the future. You haven't done anything in the past that allows me to trust in you. And so Paul says this. Has God cast away his people? His response back, certainly not. And he says, just look at me as an example. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I have to resist the temptation of just speaking all on each one of these points for an extended period of time. But, but I want you to get the heart here. So you don't have to be afraid that because when people mess up, God will kick them out of his family who are truly his. That when people rebel, then God has had enough with them. Because who has rebelled against Jesus the Messiah more than me? I not only rejected him as my Messiah, I called him a blasphemer. And not only was I so enraged about him and his message and his messengers that I took his people and put them to death. And then I imprisoned the rest. How would God rescue me as an Israelite if he did not have in his heart people who are his chosen people? God will not forsake his promises to ethnic Israel. And part of that could be just found in the example of Paul as one individual Israelite who had no merit to be rescued by God, but was. And then he goes on, and we won't read the text. He goes, well, let me give you another example. How about the remnant, the lesson learned from the remnant in Elijah's day? If you know the Bible story, Elijah 
had fought the prophets of Baal, had won that, but then he went back and all the, the leadership in Israel that day were rejecting him. And he, he turned around, he said, you know, there's no one, there's no one believing you. They're all, they've all forsaken you. And God answers back and said, you don't understand everything that's going on. There are 7,000 people of my chosen people who have not bowed their knee to the prophet Baal. And he speaks about that God always has a remnant. And throughout history, God has been faithful to his chosen people because there's always been a remnant of people who are part of his family and demonstrated by faith. But then he goes back, well, what about the rejection of the larger part of Israel? What, what part of God's plan makes sense with that? I mean, nationally, they just rejected him. And then pick up the story in verse 11. I say then, they have stumbled. Have they stumbled that they, may, they should fall, speaking of Israel? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their future riches for the Gentiles, how much more their faithfulness? Now, just to unpack that a little bit, he said, well, did God just allow Israel to fall so that he would just humble them or make them stay in the, on the, in the ground forever? He said, no, there was a purpose for that. Because in their rejection, God would use that to draw non-Jews to himself. See, God's plan has always been for people to come to true faith. In the Old Testament, Abraham's descendants, Israel, was to be a light in which people would be drawn to them. But largely, Israel forsook that that mission. And they lived self-centered lives, not being a testimony to the reality of who God is. And many people would blaspheme God because how they would be brought back into judgment because they disobeyed God. And, And so the... The light going out to reach the non-Jews was not being fulfilled in Israel. So what happened is he changed that. He said, now, instead of people being drawn into a nation known by me, God's people are now to go out and get the message out to those outside in the community. And so he reaches non-Jews or Gentiles for faith. But then he says, this is done for a purpose because what's going to happen now is that those who once had all the promises and blessings of God are going to be now jealous for those who do have it. Look at verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I also am an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy for those who are of my flesh, Israel, and save some of them. Paul saying, I, I was given the mission to reach non-Jews, Gentiles, even though I was a Jew. But I feel good about that because even in doing that, I'm going to draw Jewish people to faith. And how is that going to happen? Because they're going to be jealous for what they don't have. Let me try to illustrate that as simply as I can. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and you have a group of people there and you look at the menu and can't figure what you want to order? Have you been there? And you usually ask, hey, what are you going to order? And the reason you're asking that is because maybe you get a clue from what they're going to order, what you might want. But anyway, everybody, everybody can't decide. The waiter kind of gets, comes there for the third time and you've got to order. So everybody starts ordering things. And maybe you were first in line, so you ordered something, and then everybody else ordered, and you're still not real confident about what's going to come on your plate when uh, they bring the food. And then it gets there. And all of a sudden, you look at what somebody else has, and you go, I want that. <laughs> you want to trade? Or you want to share? You can have half, half of mine, I'll get half of yours. Or can I sample it? Can I get a bite? And they, and they say, are you talking about a nibble? Or are you talking about consuming it, all right? And what happens, what you want now is predicated on what you see other people have. 
And in many ways, that's what we are to do as God's people as well, and particularly for the Jewish people, is they need to see that we have a true relationship with God and that they want what we have. Now, the point I'm trying to make is the point Paul was making, somewhat in an involved way. He's saying God will always be good. God will always have things under his control. God will always be in charge. And it is true even more so when you look at Israel. I mean, even you look at nationally, who would have ever expected that a, a nation as dispersed as they have been would come back and become a nation in 1948? And, and even then, that they would be able to survive all the hatred around them and still be a nation today because God preserves his people. Now, there needs to come a time where spiritually there'll be a revival among his people. But God has, has taken them and protected them. And he said, one way you can know that he's going to be faithful in the promises for the future is look at God's faithfulness in the past. He said, look at me. I was not deserving as an Israelite to come to faith. Look at the remnant in Elijah's day. They were worshiping a false god, Baal, and yet God protected a remnant. Look at why he's doing it today. He's provoking his people to jealousy because we have what they always were promised to have. And then he makes one other analogy. He makes the analogy, well, I want you to understand how this is, is being fastened together. And it's the, the lessons learned or the analogy expressed in the, the lump and the grafting on of branches into the, the root of Israel. Look at verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, he uses some language here that you know, it takes kind of hard, a while to visualize. He said, okay, you got a tree here, and, and the tree is producing fruit. And if you produce a first fruit offering, that first fruit is a, a picture of promise that the rest of the fruit is going to be good as well. And, and so, and that actually is true in all that God asks us to do. If we give unto him a portion of what we have, it's to demonstrate that he doesn't just get the portion, he gets all of it. But he says, that, that's how it's always been. There's a first fruit. And the first fruit, that would have been the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was a true fruit, a true expression of faith. And it's a demonstration that there will be more to come. Verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, we say, okay, now you've got this tree and it had good fruit on it, but some of the fruit wasn't too good. And, and you see these branches that had false fruit or no fruit at all, they were broken off. They were pruned off completely. And then something happened, he said, from a wild olive tree, something off in the distance would be those who were not a, a covenant people of Israel, Gentiles. They were in some wild olive tree. What was, was taken, their branches were grafted or put into the true tree, the true of, of true faith that became with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that still had life flowing through it, that, attached, that had some branches attached that had true faith or true fruit and some that were dead. They were grafted among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. But he said, as, if, as these new branches that have been brought from the non-Jewish world into true faith in the true God, don't now become boastful that somehow you're better or have nothing to do with the root of God's faith in the past, which is Israel. He says, verse 18, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Because even if you were to graft a, a healthy branch or one that could produce fruit on a tree for a length of time and you were detached it, that that would no longer have life. 
So realize the life comes from the root of faith. Verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, verse 20, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Those who were not true Israel were those who did not have faith and they were left, uh, they were left off. But true faithful branches from outside the Jewish world came in. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Because again, true branches are only by faith. If you have a have a person connected to, to a church or to the root of faith which, which fuels the church, but it's an untrue faith, then they will not remain as well. Verse 22, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. There's so many people that connect to a church and they think just be by being in a church, it makes them part of God's family. Just like some people who get baptized think just because they got baptized, they become part of God's family. We are not true children of God by external things. We are true children of God by having true faith from within. And he makes that analogy. If you think some of the branches of Israel fell off because they didn't have faith, that is so much more true even today. That if you don't have true faith, you'll be cut off. Verse 24. For if you were cut off out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature in a cultivated cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And with that, he's saying this. As you look to the future, there's going to come a time when ethnic Israel will be brought back to the root of faith. And they will bear true fruit. So that complicated analogy of that first fruit or that lump and the grafting in is that what has happened in the past is going to be happening in the present and the future. And there's going to be a time which God will take not only people that were not of his covenant people, non-Jews, but he'll bring Jews back into the root of faith. Now, the reason I go through this complicated argument is because God wants to understand that what he has done from the past. Remember, we looked at the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament? It's promises made in the in the new testament is promises what kept and if we don't really believe that god is going to keep his promises to israel why would we think god's going to keep his promises to us and so he goes through this rather involved analogy to say those of us who've been grafted into the true root of faith If that could be true for us, can it not also be true for what he will do in the future for Israel? But then you ask, well, when's this going to happen? It's been 2,000 years and Israel largely still rejects Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 25. For I did not desire, and this is the whole idea that it's the timetable of God's program that we need to realize. For I did not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. The mystery is that which was not fully revealed in the past. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will deliver, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant or my promise with them when I take away their sins. What is he saying here? Very simply, and, and to an audience that would have been familiar with this whole argument, he's saying, look it. You're wondering, well, if this is true... Why has this happened already? And this is actually only a generation from the time when Jesus was here. 
It's only 20 or 30 years from the time of, of Christ's resurrection. But as he says this to them, he's saying, look it, it's God's timetable. And the clock is ticking. And the only thing that's preventing from all this happening is when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, which simply means this. It's when God has rescued all those who are non-Jews into his family. Then I will do this new work in Israel. And I really believe in the book of Revelation. You see some some strong indication of how that's going to be done. In Revelation chapter 70, he speaks of 144,000 Jewish evangelists coming to, to faith. And they spread the message everywhere. And what you see is a spiritual revival, not only through every nation, but you see it through the nation of Israel. If you tie Zacharias to that, there's going to be a third of God's nation just coming to faith as all of Israel will respond to him in a people movement to demonstrate the faithfulness and greatness of God. Now, wh- whether you were able to follow through the train of thought in Romans chapter 11 as we kind of race through it, here's what I want you to le- leave you with. As you think about the nature and character of God, you, you need to understand that God is not only good, but He's powerful. He's able to do everything that He has said He will do. And He will do it. And if you want an object lesson for that, all you have to do is how God has been faithful to Israel, even though they've rebelled so many times, recorded in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But God will be faithful to his promises. So as you go through the challenges of life and you wonder where God is, you need to remember that God is still under the power of his majesty. And that he is in charge of everything that is happening in this world. And that, he's, that the things that, that happen in this world are sifted through his grace. And when life goes wrong, you need to turn to the one who is always right. And to recognize that this world is in his hands. Let's pray. So often when we struggle in life, it's because we, at that moment, doubt your goodness or doubt your power. And Father, as, as Paul labored in chapters 9 through 11 to speak of the sovereignty of God, to the election and grace of God, to His mercy and to His providential direction in all dimensions of life. He wanted us to humbly respond to him in submission and in faith. And Father, I would pray for each one here this morning and whatever part of the journey they're on right now, Father, I would pray that they would run to you to have you with them in that journey. For some of it's to begin that step of faith by Admitting their need and turning from that which is wrong in their life and turning to the Savior. It's believing that Jesus fully paid the penalty for their sins and rose again. And it's committing to follow Jesus as their Lord, God, and Savior. For others, it's, it's a point of saying, God, I, I'm, I'm tired of being your counselor. I'm tired of giving you advice. Well, I, I want to be a person who submits to your will. Even when I don't understand it. Believing that. 
you are in control. You are sovereign and you're in charge. Father, help us to be obedient people that trust you and acknowledge you even in the midst of the storms. And we praise in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. As concluding song.